Okay, grab your Bibles, and let's go back to Exodus. We are going to consider and walk through and teach and exposit this word applied to our hearts from Exodus 11 through chapter 12, which means we're dealing with the true word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces between the joint and the marrow, the very inner parts of our thoughts and intentions of the heart, which means we need help. Uh, we need to be, uh, yes, maybe stricken, but also encouraged, so we're going to ask for His help just once more. Pray with me as we ask for His Word to bear fruit that He has ordained for it. So God, make Your Word a swift Word that moves quickly, passing from the ear to our very hearts, and then from the heart, may it come back out with our lips and our conversation, our very life just to be changed by your word, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. For the glory of Christ as our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. And that means recommence new habits called or that we aspire to in our New Year's resolutions. Uh, you reflect maybe on your past year, who you are, where you've been, and you might be thinking to yourself, I wish I was better. I wish I was more healthy. I wish I was more disciplined. I wish I did this and that. And so we come and make these New Year resolutions because maybe you're one really kind of hoping for a new you this year to be redefined. And so that then prompts the question, and we're going to consider this morning in particular, is, well, what makes you you? Have you thought about that? What defines you? What makes you distinct, makes you yourself. What defines you? And if you haven't tried to give that much thought to distill it or be very clear about it, I want to give you a challenge. Consider this. I'll call it the Twitter bio challenge. That is, if you could define yourself, if you could characterize yourself in just 160 characters, how would you do it? What would you say? Or what did you say if you have a Twitter handle or something like this? Did you mention your job? Would you mention your family, church, hobbies? What would define you? What, what, what characterizes you? Now, now, this is actually an important question, whether you've been uh, too self-conscious about it or not in the past, really, because how you think about yourself, okay, how you define yourself really reveals how you see all of life. It reveals what you think is important, and it shows what your direction is in this world. It, it helps you reveal and have an insight, what is your life all about? And for some of us, maybe it's rather aspirational, especially those of us here on the younger spectrum. We're an aspiring artist, or we're a future engineer, student at tech, or something like this. Or for some of us, maybe your past more defines you uh, by what you've accomplished. I homeschooled my 11 teen kids, some mother says here. Or I got these accolades at work. I've established this kind of business or this kind of portfolio. I rebuilt my house by my own two hands. I'm known as a handy guy. I'm a grandmother to 20 different grandchildren. Whatever it is, what defines you? Because those labels that we've taken or received or earned, they do define us just by definition. And in that way, it doesn't only rehearse our past, where we've been, but it charts our future, our priorities, where we're going what we value, what we're about, what we focus on, what we do. And so you see, we're really coming to that question of our identity. Who are we? What defines us? And so we have to consider in this room, well, what defines us as a Christian? 
What does it mean to be a Christian and to be defined by Christ? To be defined as one who trusts in Jesus, has been saved by grace, believes the Bible, and follows after what our Lord has said. How must your identity as a Christian form you, shape you? Well, two things we'll see in this text that we see mirrored here in Israel. The people of God of the Old Testament defines us too in the New Testament, so to speak, and that is God's promises must define us, because in that way they chart our future, our direction, where we're headed, but also God's sacrifice defines us. It's the very foundation of who we are. And you see that represented by this takeaway main idea this morning, and that's for us. The charge is recover your identity as a Christian. As you're coming into 2023, this wasn't about you being a more healthy you. This was you about being Christ's. This is about you claiming His name and walking like Him. Because you have been founded on God's promises and you've been claimed by His sacrifice. This is what defines you. This is what should be on your, so to speak, Twitter handle or your bio. This identity being founded and grounded in the promises of God and being claimed by His sacrifice, this is the identity that drives your life every day in Christ. So to summarize it then, here's how it would fall out of the text. You find your direction in His promises. We'll see that in the first chapter here, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. His promises give us direction. They chart our course. They show God's plan to us. But then furthermore, we'll also see as we turn to the first 13 verses of chapter 12, we find our belonging that we are claimed by His sacrifice. And again, that totally defines us because He is our Lord. He's our Master. We've been bought by Him. Well, let's look at the first. Let's find our direction in His promises. Because as a Christian, your future is spelled out by the very promises of God, such that His Word to you should dominate your focus, your outlook on life. Again, they chart your future. So now as we, we're going to turn, though, and we're looking at promises, I grant, they were specifically given to the Old Testament people of Israel, so these are promises for them as they're coming out of Egypt, and yet these very kinds of promises, follow me, these same types of promises are also true for God's people in the New Testament, the church. They're the same kind of categories of promises, though not the very same kinds. And I think you'll see what I mean. And the first promise we see for them, and it's also true for us as His people, there's the promise of provision. We see that in the first three verses here. Who are you in Christ you are one that has been provided for by God. That's who you are. That should define you. So as we come to this now, the final threat, remember where we've been. Of course, Israel's been enslaved in Egypt, and God has been letting them go through the process of bringing these various plagues. And we've had nine so far, and we're coming to the last, the tenth. And this is going to be the, the, the straw that breaks Pharaoh's back, where he finally says, fine, he cries uncle, and he lets Israel go. We're near the end. That's where we open here in chapter 11. Let's see it. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After this, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. He's not merely going to let his hands off. He's going to kick you out. But are they going to be thrown out on the street? Like, what does Israel have? Think about this. They've been slaves for generations. 
I mean, what do they have to their name? They've been owned themselves. They haven't really owned anything. So how are they supposed to make a new start? Well, God made promises about this. Actually, He made promises as the whole thing was about to begin. Look over in Exodus chapter 3. This is at the burning bush. Remember, the Lord had revealed Himself to Moses there and His plan to save His people. And even in the very midst of this, God gives the amazing promise, I know you're enslaved by the most powerful country on the planet at this point, but I'm getting you out of slavery. You're going to win and get out. But more than this, you're not going to go out empty-handed. God told him this. This is in the middle of verse 21 of Exodus 3. When you go, you shall not go empty. That is empty-handed. Furthermore, he says in verse 22, you shall actually plunder the Egyptians. What? That's crazy. You're not only going to escape slavery, and this isn't like one slave getting away. This is a whole million people getting out of slavery. And furthermore, they're going to come out loaded with riches. Because, looking back to chapter 11, look at verse 2. He says, this is going to change everything. He's going to drive you out. And as you're being driven out, verse 2, the Lord says in chapter 11, Speak now in the hearing of the people, so tell Israel this on their way out, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. So Israel, on your way out of town, don't forget to talk to your Egyptian friends that they would give you all their money. And they're going to do it. You're going to just go ask for their wallet and they're just going to fork it over. Here, yeah, take it. Get out of here. They're not merely going to escape Egypt. They're going to plunder it. How can this happen? Well, he's faithful, isn't he? He made the promise long before, and he's going to keep it, no matter how inconceivable it may have seemed at the, at the first. Why? Because who is this God? He's the God who actually speaks things into existence, you see. He's the creator. Was this challenge of Israel enslaved a problem? Not hardly. I mean, if you look at this, again, to put Israel back into chapter 3, how is this ever going to happen? It just can't, God. I, I like your dreams. I love your ideas. I just don't think they're going to work. Oh, but they will. Oh, they will. He'll make sure of it. And how does he do it, practically speaking? Well, you look here in verse 3. It says, the Lord gave people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man of Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. I mean, they used to despise the Jews, and now they're scared of them. Well, how did that happen? What did it take to get there? Oh, some nine plagues that totally decimated Egypt, that ravaged all of Egypt. Such that, again, they're like, yeah, take my wallet as long as you get out of here. Because we're all going to die if you hang out here any longer. So they're not only getting out of Egypt, but the Lord has so provided for them that they're going to be loaded with riches on their way out of town. So as Christians, now transitioning to the New Testament people of God, so as Christians, what are we to expect? Has God promised us riches and money? Should we all go home and go to our neighbor's house and say, hey, can I have your wallet, please? No, you shouldn't. That might be robbery, I think. Has God promised His people riches and money? Actually, no. 
following Christ will actually mean generously letting go of your wealth. And yet still, that does not deny that God has provided in abundant ways for His people. Well, like what, Rick? And these are real, literal blessings. The treasures of heaven. He's given you peace with God. He's given you the gospel message. He's given you joy in the Holy Spirit. He's given you a peace that transcends all understanding. He's given you heaven, life eternal. Those are real, tangible things. Even though we don't hold them all yet. But that doesn't even mention all of the blessings and provisions He's given to our even very physical needs. Remember what the Lord had said in Matthew chapter 6. He said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things, the things you need, He's talking about food and clothing and so forth, all those things will be added unto you. His point was, you don't have to worry about those things. Worry about His kingdom and righteousness, and what you need will be given. What you need, not your greed. So then really, though, the most pertinent question probably is not so much, what are the things that He has provided for us, but why has He provided them? Why has He given you the things that He's given you? Heaven, let alone on this earth. Why do you have them? Why has He so blessed you and provided for you? And again, the example of Israel, I think, proves quite instructive here. Because what's going to happen? Israel's enslaved in Egypt, right? They're getting out. And as they make out with all of that plunder, they're going to go meet God at Mount Sinai. And when they meet God at Mount Sinai, He's going to then dwell with them. As He dwells with them, He's going to dwell with them in a tent. And there's going to be an altar. And there's going to be all of these forms for their worship. And you know what? A lot of those are what? They're covered with gold and made out of silver and bronze and all of these things. Well, where and how are they going to build all of these things? Where are they going to get the resources for this? They're in the middle of the desert. Oh, because they carried them out of Egypt. See, the Lord provided for them. Why? So they can be rich and have gold earrings? No, but so they can serve the Lord. That's why. This is why He gives. Why is He provided for you? Is it not to better serve Him? So what has He given you? Time. Maybe relative health. Food. Resources, money, brains, brawn, skills, any of it. But who is it for? And the way you use those things He's provided, as the world looks on, who do they think they're for? What they should be for, what we aspire them to be for, is for the glory of our Redeemer, to serve Him. That's why He's provided for us, as He's promised. He also promises not only provisions, but payback. Verses 4 to 6 here. The Lord not only promises to provide, He also promises justice, retribution for the wrongs done against His people. Who are you in Christ then? You are one who will be justly vindicated by God. We turn then to verses 4 to 6 of chapter 11. And we see the Lord's final words to Pharaoh. If you remember the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh was telling Moses, get out of here. I don't want to see your face again. When you see my face again, you're going to die. I'm going to kill you. And Moses is like, fine, but the Lord has one more word for you, Pharaoh. And what's that word? Justice is coming. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go and 
the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Now, we, we noted in verse 1, this is the last plague, the Lord said. He promised. This is the last one. And God Himself, Yahweh, is going to pass through Egypt. And as He does so, He's going to bring death to every firstborn male in all of the land of Egypt. It's rather indiscriminate. It's going to be from the, the firstborn of the very halls of Pharaoh's court to the firstborn of the lowly slave girl's den. Even the firstborn cattle are going to die. But understand, even though it seems very indiscriminate, this was not the outpouring of blind wrath. This was not the outpouring of uncontrolled punishment. This was very, this was very controlled. This was very intentional and deliberate. Well, what do you mean? Look back with me to Exodus chapter 4. Just flip over a page or two and look in Exodus 4. For there, if you recall, this is where we heard God express His care for His people. And you remember, He sh expressed His commitment to His people so strongly, what did He call Israel? He said, you are, and we'll look at it there. This is in verse 22 of Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Oh, don't you see? This is the key to the punishment then, isn't it? This is what makes sense of this last plague. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. He goes on, And I say to you, let my son go, he tells Pharaoh, that he may serve me. Again, what's the purpose? To serve God. But if you refuse, Pharaoh, to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Do you see it? It's all there. What was he saying? Because you have wronged my firstborn, my prized son, you wronged him with slavery, servitude, abuse, and that for hundreds of years, for that injustice, I'm taking your firstborn sons. Tit for tat, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, that is justice. And that means even particular for Pharaoh, it's going to mean affliction on Pharaoh's own firstborn. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, son for son. It's justice. It's payback. Such that as Pharaoh and the taskmasters made Israel cry out in grief for hundreds of years, so now they are going to be the ones crying out in grief and anguish. Just as God promised to bring payback, not only on His enemies, but the enemies of His people. And that's not just a promise that we see realized here for Old Testament Israel. It's a promise that God gives also. May we be warned and also encouraged, but He gives it for His church too. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. He says this, "'This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom.'" For which you are also suffering. So he's writing to this church. You're suffering for God's purposes and his kingdom, the gospel, but there's a righteous judgment coming. He goes on to explain that. He says, Since God considers it just, right, equitable, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You see that? Those who afflict his church, they will be afflicted. On the first, this means what? God will give out the affliction. He will mete out the justice. 
which means we're not called to do it on our own. We're not called to take justice into our own hands, you see. We're actually called in faith in His promises to do what? Jesus tells us. We are reference the Sermon on the Mount, but it's this, to turn the other cheek. We're called to go the extra mile. Paul talks about this too to the Corinthians. He says, it would be better to let yourself be wronged. How can you do that? Because you're trusting in the justice of God, not the justice you can make on your own. And furthermore, from the Thessalonians passage, we hear when God will do this. So the passage from 2 Thessalonians 1 goes on and says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to take matters into our own hands. He's going to get justice. But when's He going to do it? When He comes back. That's when He's going to do it. And what does that mean for us in the meantime? You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to look at it in faith by His promise of justice that's going to come. That means people might wrong you and get away with it, even in this life. That means people might belittle you, take advantage of your kindness, disregard your faith in Christ, and disregard you. And to the day you die, you might never see justice. And you might say, well, how is that fair? But by this promise, no, He will make it right in the end. It will be fair. It will be. He will bring justice on the evildoer. But in His timing... And by His means. And so what does that mean for us? We need to wake up from our daydreams of always trying to win the argument, of getting vengeance on our own. We need to wake up from our daydreams about, oh, if I would have got that last word in, I would have really showed them. Oh, if I would have said this, I would have made them look the fool. How dare they do that to me? No. We laid that all aside. It's not about our reputation. Instead, that whole thing, we trust God with it. And we say, you are the righteous judge. You will do right. You will make it right. I don't need to do this on my own. I trust you. Because know this, and trust Him in this, all of those wrongs are not unnoticed by Him. He hasn't forgotten. But He's calling us to trust. To trust Him as well because the promise of His protection. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Who are you in Christ? You are protected by God is who you are. This is the fruition of these great promises, ultimately, that distinguish His people from the rest of fallen humanity. He marks out His people for rescue. And again, of course, we've talked about this already through Exodus, so we'll be brief here. But this is something Pharaoh should have easily picked up about Israel by now. The Lord does not treat everyone on the earth the same. The Lord of all the earth treats Israel differently. And why? Because they are His firstborn son. 
So that while the Egyptians are crying out in grief over their dead sons, verse 7, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He doesn't see everyone the same. He doesn't treat everyone the same. Now, he doesn't do any injustice either. We talked about this from Romans 9. He does everyone right. But some get mercy and others do not. And a part of that totally rests just in the mind of God and not ours. But as much as it depends upon us, then what distinguishes who gets mercy and who doesn't? Well, I don't think it can be summed up better than the text we looked at on Sunday, Christmas Day. It's a verse you know well, even if you weren't here. It's John 3.16. Each one who believes in the Son will not perish, but have eternal life. What distinguishes fallen humanity that will perish, the sons of destruction, from those who will not? Each one who believes in the Son has life. Humanity is divided into two groups. And everyone resides in one group or the other. There are no exceptions. There's no excuses. You can't ride the fence. And nor can you try and identify with one group with still trying to hold on to the other. It's a demarcation between all of humanity, and it all hinges on this one individual, Jesus Christ. What have you done with Him? For those that have trusted in Him, they would never perish, but they would live forever. And that protection is promised. Because it's all in accord with also the promise of His plan. Verses 9 and 10. For this matches what God has planned for all of history. If you are in Christ, who are you? You are one who is secure in God's plan. This great plan of redemption. What's God's great scheme? To show off who He is. Namely, He is merciful, and He is gracious, and He's slow to anger, and He's abounding in love to sinners. He loves the unlovable and calls them and shows mercy to His enemies. He takes the undeserving, He takes the undesirable, and He claims claims them as His own. Why? Because that's who He is. That's God's great plan, that He will broadcast His character of saving sinners for all to see for all time. But here's the thing, even as we gather from Exodus, though it's a great plan, it's still a great plan, even if it travels through a crooked path. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, but notice why that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. We've seen this. God even has trouble ordained in the heart of Pharaoh to magnify his name in the end. This is the good he's out to accomplish. Look at verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let a people Israel get out of his land. And so you might say in this case, God's plan that goes along a crooked and maybe winding path is Pharaoh's heart. Because you understand that Pharaoh's heart made for all kinds of trouble for the people of Israel. Slavery, abuse, murder. 
And so you see, God's even good promises to Israel, they don't come to them by a straight line. They don't come straight away. That's not how things work in this sinful, broken world. And yet, at the same time, He gives the reassurance, though it doesn't come straight away, it comes. It's comforting to know that all of these things are actually working just according to His plan, even through Pharaoh's hard heart. Another way to say it then, His promises make no wrong turns. There may be some divergent, unexpected paths, but they are the very best ones to go on. He is actually very means to get us home. It's like when you're traveling somewhere and you're using your GPS. I use often Google Maps on my phone. And you're just driving along, and then unexpectedly, Google tells me that it's going to take me another way. And it's going to save me 30 minutes because of a wreck up ahead and so on and so forth. Sometimes our path walking to heaven is like that. Except God, in His wisdom, He doesn't tell you He's taking a different path. He doesn't alert you ahead of time that there's going to be a strange turn. But He says, you're going to have to trust my directions. And frankly, the path may be bumpier than you anticipated. I mean, for Israel, it meant slavery. For Joseph, it meant being abandoned by his brothers. For Jesus, it meant a cross. And yet, what do we see? What's the assurance? This is, even through those bumps, the very way he brings his people home. Actually, by all those bends in the road. So every and any turn in his plan, get this, For His people, it's the right one. But it takes faith to see that, doesn't it? you got to look at His promises, not at your circumstances. you got to say, I can trust you. Because you're defined by those promises. That the promises that made you, they are who you are. You you have your eyes heavenward. You have a promise word looking to Him. And that way, even forgiven what's all around you. What defines you as a Christian? Don't forget His promises. They are the right direction for your life. What defines you as a Christian? His Word defines you. This is our path. It lights our way. Who are you as a Christian? You're one caught up in the promises and plan of God to magnify His name. That's where we're headed, and He's bringing all His people home. No matter how twisty and turny, if we can say it that way, the path will be. Find your direction in His promises. But furthermore here now, find your belonging in His sacrifice. He charts our future by the promises, but then He claims us by this sacrifice. There's a sense where we go to the Word and we look forward to what God will do, but we also look backward to know where He's going to take us. We look back to redemption. We look back to His sacrifice. We see that here now as we turn to chapter 12 in Exodus. And before the final night in Egypt comes, the Lord has special instructions for His people. And He tells them, your life is going to have a restart tonight. And that's what we see is what the sacrifice does. It gives us new belonging. It gives us a new start. Verses 1 and 2. Let's see that. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. What's about to happen? It's going to reset your whole calendar. 
This is a new beginning. The old is passing away, and a new life is dawning. And that's what we want for ourselves every new year, isn't it? Kind of want to put behind us the old problems and walk in a new life. Again, that's why we make these things New Year's resolutions. And yet so often, what do we find about these New Year's resolutions? They never really work or seem to last the whole year. And why do we struggle with this? Well, to burst your bubble, truth be told, the movement last night from 2022 to now 2023 actually changed nothing but your calendar. The sun came up just the same, like yesterday, and you're no different. If you thought you were going to wake up on January 1st today and suddenly, miraculously lose all desire for junk food, sorry, it's still going to be tasty in about 30 minutes. Or if you suddenly thought you are going to wake up and be a marathoner, sorry. Why? Because you didn't change last night. Your calendar did. But there are times when God so invades your life, we call it conversion. Jesus talks about it, you're born again, you are changed. Death has gone away, and now you have life because God is with you. And in that way, your calendar changes. You go from B.C. to A.D., If we can put it that way, you go from before Christ to in the year of our Lord, you walk with Him now. It's a new start. That's what God's doing here in Israel. He's changing things. So much, you can change your calendar. You can mark your life begins now. That's what happens when we come to faith in Christ. That should be what defines us. Because, and what does it hinge on this next, this perfect substitute? This is why we belong to God because there's been a perfect substitute. We see that here in verses 3 to 10. What is it that will shift everything and reorient our whole life? Well, evidently here for Israel, it starts with a lamb. A dumb, young sheep is going to change their life. Really? Look at verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So every house, you're going to go grab a lamb. And if your house is too small, then go jump in with your neighbor and then share a lamb together. But there will be a lamb for every house in Israel. And we notice as it continues, it's not just any lamb, but it's a choice lamb, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And now it's not made explicit here, but we know why this lamb has to be faultless, don't we? Why it must be without blemish. For it's to be a sacrifice to bear our faults, our sins. That's why it had to be faultless, so it could take some faults of someone else. And that for the whole house. For later, the Old Testament will prescribe, give further details on how these sacrifices must be done. The priest would take the animal and put his hand on the animal's head, pronounce over it all the sins that he's committed and the sins of the people, and then slit the lamb's throat. Why? Because that faultless lamb was bearing all the faults of the priest and the people, and so then it had to die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Verse 6. And you shall keep it 
until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their, twin, their lambs at twilight. This was the substitute bearing their sins, dying for the family. And it was a sacrifice shown because as the lamb's blood was just poured over all of the doorposts of the house, that house was covered, marked with blood. Continuing on that theme, we see in verses 7 and 8, we see that the sacrifice, interestingly, was supposed to be eaten. So it just wasn't killed. But then all of those in the house ate this sacrifice. That lamb gave its life, so then all those in the house can have sustenance and life by eating it. By death comes life. Furthermore, note the way that the lamb is prepared and served, verses 8 and 9. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. And it must be roasted whole with its head and its legs and its inner parts. Why? What's the point? It had to go through fire and it had to be all of it. Why? Because all of us, for our sins, we should go through the fires of judgment. All of it. It is a total sacrifice wholly consumed by the fire of God's judgment, as we should have been for our sin. How should that define you? You are the kind of person that should be consumed by the fire of God. How should that define you? You are the person that needs a restart. How should that define you? You are the person who needs a substitute, a full one, and one that will set you free. And we see that here next in the first part of verse 11. Shown in even the way, this freeing sacrifice and the way that they're supposed to dress and prepare for the meal, the way they eat it. Look at the first part of verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. This is fast food. That's what it is. Why? Because you've got to get ready to go and get out of here. That's why. It's like a family that's going to head to on some vacation, uh, but to save some money, uh, you're going to fly out of D.C. instead of Richmond, and your flight's at 6 o'clock in the morning. So what does that mean if you bother going to bed? Uh, you need to get everything ready in the house so you can spend as little as time from getting up to actually getting in the car and getting on the road. You need to do it quick because you've got to make this flight. So what are you going to do? If you, again, if you bother even going to bed, you're going to uh, set out all the breakfast things on the counter, and they're going to be like to-go quick things, and then you're going to have your kids, they're going to wear their clothes in bed, right? So they can just jump out and get in the car and go if you don't just put them to bed in the car. No, don't do that. But you get where we're going. So that in the first thing in the morning, you can zap fire your Pop-Tarts, shove them in, and get on the road and get up to that flight. In other words, again, with this sacrifice, you have to be ready to go. This is not a peaceful meal to lounge and enjoy. No, this meal means you're leaving fast and early. Eat with your shoes on, eat with your belt on, eat with your walking stick in hand. Why? Because this sacrifice is setting you free. Freedom comes by this killing, this sacrifice. After 400 years of slavery... Everything changes that night because of the death of the Lamb. And we too have been set free, brothers and sisters, from bondage to sin after so many years. But Christ sacrificed for us. He died for us. 
And we've been set free from sin's bondage. But do you define yourself as one set free from sin's lures and temptations and clutches? Is that how you would have defined yourself? That's how Paul defines us in Christ. Listen to this, Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, note this, brothers and sisters, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You're not. You're not enslaved to sin any longer. You don't have to do it anymore. As assuredly as Christ died and lives now, you're free. And yet, instead of being dressed, ready for action with these truths of the gospel, how often are we just lounging in our slippers one more night with sin? Has he broken our chains or hasn't he? Oh, he has. And yet, so many of us, what do we do? We go back to Egypt and we put the shackles back on ourselves. And if that sounds crazy, like why would someone ever do that? Well, Israel's going to ask to do it later. We're going to see that in Exodus. They'll want to go back. And we do the same thing every time we return to a sin and we resign to it. We say things like, well, that's just my personality. I can't change. I've always been like this. I have this besetting sin. When Christ says, by his death, no, you don't. I died for you to change you. I set you free. Gird up that gospel truth in your mind and fight sin as a freed man. Because that's who you are now. That's what defines you, not your sin. Finally, that's all true because of this peacemaking settlement. That's what the sacrifice provides. It makes peace so that we can belong to God. And it's called the Lord's Passover. Look at the middle, the end there, verse 11. What is all this about? It is the Lord's Passover. And what's that exactly? Why is it called the Passover? Well, he explains that, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And God says, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh, he's saying. I'm the only God. And all the other gods you worshipped. You know, they had gods for everything in Egypt. They had gods for the frogs, gods for the bulls, gods for the cows, gods for the lions, gods for all of it. And could they deliver from the Lord? No. And nor can their firstborns be delivered. But as God passes through taking out all the firstborns, we read this then in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, the Lord says, I will pass over. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Why? It's all about the blood, do you see? The blood will be a sign. A sign for what? That he will pass over. And so no plague will come to destroy you. Why? Because the door spread on, the blood spread on the door of the house. What does it say? Death has already taken place in this home. There's no more punishment left. The substitute spilled its blood so that death won't come to this house. Because again, what's the wage for sin? It's death, separation from God. And yet that death has stayed where the blood has already been spilt and paid. And is that not what Christ, our Passover lamb, has done for us? 
Don't you see why he had to be perfect, sinless? So he could take our sins, so then he could die. Why was he dying? It wasn't for his sins. He didn't have any. Why did he die then on the cross? For you, for the sins you had committed, sins that I had done. So that he can look at a believer in Christ, though as unrighteous as he is with his sin, but those sins now are gone, he can say, forgiven. And he can say, righteous. And he can still be a good judge. Why? Because he still paid the price. That's the glory of the gospel. This satisfying payment, our Passover sacrifice, that when God should bring the justice on our own heads to then borrow the words from Exodus, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Praise be to God for that sacrifice, our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. That's why He can pass over us. But to tie it back, that so defines us now because we've been bought. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So what do we do? We glorify God with our body. We live for a new master, one who came and died for us. Does that define your life this morning? That you were doomed, but Christ in His mercy bought you? So now remember this sacrifice and walk in that new life. Let's pray. Thank Him for this.